And once again, good morning. And dads, again, happy Father's Day. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 8. And if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel. We are currently in chapter 8, just going verse by verse. And we have paused for a few weeks to do a little mini-series I've entitled True Freedom, True Freedom. It's based on what Jesus said in verses 31 to 32 of John 8, where he said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth Jesus is referring to is the truth of God which he came from the Father to declare. Verse 26 tells us, he said, I have many things to say. He who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. So the truth Jesus is referring to is the truth of God, the freedom. The Lord has in mind is freedom from Satan's lies, from false doctrine, which the Pharisees, the ones that Jesus was at that moment talking to in John 8, they had embraced Satan's lies. Now, John 8 is, uh, contains the most heated exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes probably anywhere in the New Testament. And um, it escalated to the point where they called him uh, a bastard child because rumor had it that Mary, she didn't you know, have him through you know, a virgin birth. She fooled around the guy. Uh, that Joseph didn't know about and got pregnant and tried to cover it with these ridiculous claims that Jesus was virgin born, okay? Um, and he shoots back at them in verse 44, well, you know, you're of your father, the devil, and you love to do the things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Guys, you might say that John chapter 8 contains two ways of thinking. Um, of course, the devil's kids have a way of thinking and God's children have a way of thinking. And really in John 8, you have a battle for truth. Uh, where Jesus is proclaiming truth, the truth that will set people free from Satan's lies. And of course, those that belong to the devil try to uh, say things that try to dismiss the truth of God. We see it everywhere. We're living it in this day and age. But look, Satan has uh, many lies that he feeds people. And these lies take many different forms, rooted in many different belief systems and ideologies, but they all have the same effect. And that is to imprison those who embrace them and turn them into captives of the devil. If a person isn't, isn't set free from the lies of the devil and dies in bondage to him, the result will be that they will spend eternity in hell. Eternal destruction awaits those who embrace Satan's lies, who are, have taken, been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And if they're not set free, and the only thing powerful enough to set people free from the devil's lies is the truth of God. And that's what Jesus, Jesus is stating right here in John 8, and which the other apostles like Paul affirmed, I'll give you two, you don't have to turn to these, uh, but 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26, Paul said, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel with unbelievers, okay, but be gentle, patient, able to teach, in humility correcting those in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, know the truth of God and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So there it is. The devil has taken many captive through his lies, and we have the truth that can set men and women free. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, he said, for the weapons of our warfare, as Christians, uh, he doesn't tell us what those weapons are, I don't think he needs to, plural, the word of God and prayer are the weapons that God has given us to fight the devil. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, 
and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The Greek word there for arguments is a word we get our word ideology from. Spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 uh, is, the, is a classic passage on spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, first and foremost, is an ideological warfare waged in the mind for control of your thinking. Because the devil knows if he can control the way you think, uh, he can control the way you live. That's why when you get saved by embracing the truth, the Bible says, uh, Paul said it in, in, uh, in Romans 12, verse 1, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking. You've got to unbrainwash yourself. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, fill your mind with God's word and it will, uh, it will deprogram you from what Satan has lied to you about all these years and will set you on the right path and give you God's truth, which will set you free and keep you free from the devil's lies. But look, there are other enemies that we face in the Christian life besides Satan's lies, um, you know, which are really enemies from without. Many of the enemies that we face as Christians are from within. Or in other words, they are enemies of our own flesh that we battle with on a daily basis. And many of these enemies within are incredibly powerful and seemingly undefeatable. And it is to these enemies, guys, that our series True Freedom is targeting. In this series, we have been looking at some of the truths of God's word that will help us to be victorious in the Christian life over whatever enemy or enemies we face. And we've been doing it by studying the story of David and Goliath out of 1 Samuel chapter 17. So when you turn there, 1 Samuel 17. And I realized in 1 Samuel 17, David faced a literal giant. Okay. But the principles for victory that come out of this story apply to all children of God for whatever enemy you're facing. Because you see, guys, all of us face giants in our lives. These giants stand the way between us and God's will for our lives, even as David stood between God's will and David, stood between David and God's will for his life. The word Goliath means the one who stands between. Satan has got many Goliaths that stand between you and God's will for your life, trying to stop you trying to keep you from being all God wants you to be. These are formidable giants. And often we think that we'll never have victory. God has promised you victory. You are children of the Most High God, and victory is our birthright. And not just a little victory sporadically here and there. It's through Christ we are more than conquerors. But you have to know the principles, all right? And we'll look at some of these. There's probably others we'll look at down the road. But for our little series on, on um, you know, overcoming, on being the devil, being set free, and so on, I'll give you just some that you can meditate on. But uh, look, again, we all have giants that we face in our Christian lives. And uh, these stand in the way of us and God's will for our lives. And these would include, you know, the giants of alcohol, drugs, pornography, homosexuality, and other things like fear, anxiety, discouragement, depression, anger, all of which we in our own strength are no match for. So what do we do? How do we have victory over our giants? Well, last week we asked the question, what does the story of David and Goliath teach us on a practical level about bringing down giants that we face in life? How did David do it? Again, these principles are transferable. He fought a literal giant. We fought, fight allegorical giants, giants of the flesh, primarily. Uh, how can we have victory? I gave you the first three last week. I'll give you the last three this week. First of all, stay close to God. The battle is not yours. It's not mine. It's God's. If God's going to fight this battle, you've got to stay close to him. I mean, draw close to him every single day. Because if you don't, if you stay far from God, 
Peter followed Jesus at a distance to Caiaphas' house the morning of the crucifixion, and he fell into terrible sin by denying his Lord three times. The Holy Spirit makes it a point to say he followed at a distance. That was the problem. You follow Jesus at a distance, you're going to be removed from his power and strength. Stay close to him, on his heels, so to speak, when you follow him. It'll give you strength because it, the battle is his. You've got to look to him for victory. Number two, remember past victories. They will build your faith for present battles. Look back at all God has done in the past in your life. Any victory he's given you, any time he's provided for you when your back was against the wall and you didn't know where the rent was coming from or how the car was going to get fixed. All the times that, you know, you cried out to him in desperation and he came through. Remember those times. Meditate in those times. David did that, as we saw last week. Often he would wake in the middle of the night and remember that and oftentimes he was on the run from Saul who was trying to kill him, you know. And so he'd wake up in the middle of the night and probably woke up kind of afraid. Then he would remember God. I meditate on you, Lord. I remember your wondrous works. And he would think about the Lord. And he would bring calmness as he would just, God's delivered me in the past. He's going to deliver me now. He's, he's always been there for me. That kind of thing. Number three, acknowledge your giant. <laughs> Don't deny your giant. God won't even begin to deliver you from whatever giant you're facing in life. While you go on denying, you have a problem. You have to acknowledge, hey, look, Lord, I have a problem here. This is wrong. I'm in bondage to this thing. I need your grace. I need you to fight this fight for me. All right, well, that really brings us to the next principle that we really start today's study with. And number four is get angry at your giant. Get angry at your giant. 1 Samuel 17, end of verse 26. David says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 46. Now he's talking to Goliath directly. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you. And listen, take your head from you. Well, that was literal, of course. But in Scripture, the idea of the head was the one of authority, spoke of authority, right? Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the man is the head of the wife. He's got the authority in marriage. And the idea here, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is communicating to us that whatever giant you're facing, the Lord wants you to take its head off. In other words, rob it of its authority it has over your life. You have another head that you received when you became a Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your head. He's your authority. He's the one you got to look to. And David said, I'm going to strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Guys, one of the reasons that Christians don't have victory in their lives over certain things is because... Listen to me now. They don't see those things as enemies. <laughs> they see them oftentimes more as friends. What am I saying? Look, things like cocaine, alcohol, cigarettes. They're not your friends. They're not your helpers to get you through the day. They are your enemies. That the devil is using to slowly rob you of your life. They are Goliaths standing between you and God, trying to defeat you or trying to keep you defeated, to keep you from experiencing all that God wants to do in and through your life. Instead of defending them or by making excuses for why you need the drugs or the alcohol or the cigarettes to get you through your day, start hating these things. I have in my notes, all caps, with an exclamation point. That's good, right? That's loud. That's forceful. Get mad at your giant. Get mad at your giant. You will never have victory over that substance or anything else until you hate it, 
want to be free from it and start to take real steps toward defeating it. Look at verse 48. And so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hastened and, listen, ran toward the Philistine. Look, God doesn't want you or me to sidestep our giant. He wants us to run toward it and confront it. But the natural inclination is to want to sidestep the problem, ignore it, go around it, learn to coexist with it instead of defeating it and driving it from our lives. Listen to what God told the children of Israel as he was bringing them into the promised land to fight against the Canaanites. This comes out of Numbers 33, verse 55. Just write it down. He said to them, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Irritants in your eyes. They'll be a constant source of weeping, of sorrow. Thorns in your sides. You will live a miserable existence, spiritually speaking, because you have not fully defeated the enemy. So a lot of Christians who have entered the Christian life, their spiritual promised land, and they are not taking seriously the battle that is before them. There's giants in the land. In Canaan, there were literal giants. You know, We're going to face these things in our lives. Some of the enemies we face, not so tough. Others go way beyond our ability to have victory. But God wants you to have total victory in the area, in every area of your life as a Christian. And he has guaranteed it because Jesus Christ won the victory on Calvary's cross. That's something we need to understand. Paul makes that a point to say that. That Jesus Christ vanquished principalities and powers. He triumphed over all the power of the devil, putting them to an open shame. And the idea is now that you and I are in Christ, saved. The same power that de defeated the devil on the cross dwells in us. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, dwells in every believer and is waiting to give power that we need to defeat whatever enemy we face. It's guaranteed, guys. Again, we have been promised to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. But the tendency of so many Christians, so many of God's people, is to ignore the problem and pretend it isn't there. But it is there. You know it. God knows it. And he wants you to deal with it in his strength. Look, as Christians, we will face constant battles against numerous enemies in the course of our lives. They take many different forms. We don't always fight the same enemy. Some of us do. Some of us don't. They take many different forms in each of our lives. But they all stand in the way of us enjoying the fullness of all God has for us as his children. And guys, listen, they can't be ignored, sidestepped, justified or made excuses for they must be confronted and defeated and the sooner the better i mean i'm not saying god can't give you victory even you've been struggling with alcohol for 20 years it just becomes harder because that enemy has gotten so entrenched in your life and you've gotten so used to depending on it that oftentimes a Christian in that position just doesn't have the fight anymore. They just don't have the will, the strength. Now, that doesn't mean God can't work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure still. I pray that prayer a lot. It just means that it's best if you try to defeat your enemies as soon as you, as soon as you get saved. Start on the path of victory. And that leads directly to our next point, number five. Don't let anyone discourage you from taking on your giant. Don't let anyone discourage you from taking on your giant. 
33. And Saul said to David, who had just reported for duty to bring down this giant, here's what Saul said to David. You are not able to go, to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. King Saul was afraid to confront the Philistine from Gath, the Philistine giant from Gath. Look, as king, he should have trusted in God and led his men into battle. But unfortunately, Saul was a coward. And if that wasn't enough, he tried to discourage David from taking on Goliath himself. You know what I see in this? I see a principle. There are many people who don't want to fight against the giants in their own lives because, let's be honest, they like to drink. They like to smoke. They like to take drugs. But they really don't want you to have victory either because that will make them feel guilty. As the old saying goes, misery loves company. And so they'll try to discourage you by justifying why drinking, and I'm thinking of drunkenness primarily right now, but they'll try to discourage you from giving up alcohol by saying things like, well, you know, Jesus drank. Didn't Paul tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach problems? See, it's okay if we take a little wine. You know, there are a lot of cowards in our society. Uh, God defines a coward as anyone who won't stand up for him against whatever enemy, flesh, whatever, outside enemies, whatever. There are a lot of cowards in our society, and many of them happen to be in the church. They want to justify their sin instead of fighting against it and being free from it. And because misery loves company, they want to drag you down with them. And that's why God, God's word warns us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, bad company corrupts good habits. Bad company corrupts good habits. Habits. To be victorious, you must surround yourself, must surround yourself with strong, spirit-filled Christians, not with carnal or backslidden Christians that will pat you on the back and say, let's go get a drink together, who will encourage you to do what God has told you not to do because they don't want to feel guilty because you're trying to walk with God and they're not, so let's just be miserable together. We tend to seek out those kind of friends in the church, in the flesh, don't we? That if you want to really be victorious over whatever you're facing, understand you've got to surround yourself with good, strong, spirit-filled Christians who will keep you accountable and be, listen, your Aaron and your her. What is Aaron and her? Well, Aaron, of course, was the brother of Moses. Her, we don't know who he was, but he was a good guy. You remember that when God brought his people out of Egypt, we'll talk about that more in a moment, the Amalekites came against them pretty quickly. And Moses told Joshua, tomorrow, you take the men of Israel, go down into the valley and engage the Amalekites in battle. I'm going to go up on the mountaintop with the rod of God in my hand, the one that he used to part the Red Sea. It spoke of God's authority, God's power. I'm going to go up on the mountaintop and I'm going to raise the rod of God and we're going to get, get victory here. So that's what he did. And Moses, uh, Joshua and the, and the men of Israel went into the, uh, into the valley and engaged the Amalekites. And whenever Moses held his arm up with the rod of God, the forces of Israel were energized and they began to be victorious. Whenever his arm became weary and it began to drop, all of a sudden the forces of the Amalekites uh, were energized and they began to be victorious. So Aaron and Hur at one point run over, drag a big rock over, set Moses down on it, and Aaron takes one side of its hand and her takes the other and they held up Moses' hand until Israel completely vanquished, defeated the Amalekites. You read that story out of Exodus 17, you go, what in the world is this all about? You know what that was about? That was about the power of prayer and the necessity to have prayer partners when you're fighting the battles of the Lord. When Moses lifted that rod, he was, he was a symbol of prayer, praying to God. When his arm got weary, 
It meant he was growing weary in his prayer, spiritually speaking. And God had a couple of prayer warriors come alongside of him. And together, as prayer partners, they held Moses' arm up until God's people won the victory. Now, if you were a casual observer of that situation, if you could have been back there uh, at that time, and maybe you were on the mountain looking down, and I asked you, look, where was the battle taking place? You would have no doubt said, well, on the, in the valley with, between Joshua and the, and, the, and the Amalekites. But you'd have been wrong. The real battle took place on the mountaintop in prayer. That's what it always is. One great prayer warrior said, prayer is striking the winning blow. Service is just picking up the spoil. You want to defeat the devil in whatever area of you got going on, or maybe it's for a loved one or a friend, you start praying and you get some prayer warriors with you that you can pray together, prayer partners. And you pray faithfully until God gives you the victory completely, and he will. And please, guys, please, we're talking about defeating the flesh, the Amalekites represented. When you talk, we're talking about defeating the flesh, please don't adopt the excuse, I've gotten victory over most of my flesh. <laughs> the rest I'll just have to live with. That is a sure formula for defeat. That you're laying the groundwork for defeat. Look, who are the Amalekites? They were descendants of Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, but he was a very carnal man, a very worldly guy. And um, his descendants became as worldly as, and carnal as, as he was, absolute unbelievers. In fact, uh, one of his descendants was uh, Amalek, and of course his descendants were the Amalekites, and they were so bad, they were so carnal, that the Holy Spirit actually holds them up in Scripture as a type of the flesh. In the Bible, the word flesh can refer to the physical body. But most of the time when it's used in the New Testament, it's used to represent our sinful, fallen nature called the flesh. Our sinful, fallen nature is that rebellious nature that we were born with uh, when we were born onto this earth. We were born with it. It was passed down to us from our father Adam. He received it when he fell in the Garden of Eden disobeyed God. He and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. They both fell. At that point, they had now a fallen nature. And they passed that fallen nature on to all of their descendants. Every one of us was born with a fallen sinful nature. Uh, that part of us that wanted to rebel against God and do what we wanted to do. Live for our flesh. All the evil desires inside. Very selfish. Paul the Apostle talked about, in fact, you could turn to it, Galatians 5. Paul the Apostle talks about our war with the flesh. See, once you get saved, you get a new nature, the nature of God. But the old nature doesn't go away. The flesh remains. Even though we have the nature of God within us, the Spirit of God. And now a war breaks out. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh, again, our sinful fallen nature. Wars, constantly fights is the idea, against the spirit within us. And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish to do. In other words, obey God completely in all things he has commanded. Paul says, I want to obey God. Uh, Romans 7, I want to obey the Lord. I delight in the law of God, but there's another thing going on inside of me that is trying to keep me from, you know, fighting against, I mean, trying to keep me from obeying all that God has said. It's the flesh. And so, guys, when we read about the Amalekites in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is often using them as a type of our sinful, fallen nature. That old nature within us that's still there, fighting against our new nature to control our lives. And that's the idea. That's what the war is all about. The flesh wants to control us still. 
The Spirit lives in us, and He wants to control us now. And there's a war that's going on, and we decide who has dominance, the flesh or the Spirit. But guys, there's one more thing we can learn from the way, from the way the Amalekites attack God's people uh, out of uh, Exodus 17. When they came out of Egypt, that will help us to better understand the way the flesh attacks us as God's people in the New Covenant. As I said, the children of Israel had just come out of Egypt under Moses. Hadn't gotten too far, only had gotten as far as Rephidim. That wasn't very far. And all of a sudden, the Amalekites attacked them. Uh, Exodus 17, verse 8. Now, to attack God's people was bad enough. But it was how and who they attacked that really made the Lord furious. We read about it in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. This is God speaking, now reminding them of what happened many years earlier. Remember what Amalek, the Amalekites, did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked, listen, your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. You see, the Amalekites fought dirty. Instead of attacking Israel head on, man to man, no, they didn't do that. They came from behind and attacked those who were at the end of the line. A big line of people, about two and a half million, on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. The Amalekites attacked the rear of that line. You might be thinking, okay, but why did that God make why did that make God so angry? It was because those at the back of the line were the ones that were least able to defend themselves. They were the weak, the sickly, the elderly, and the handicapped. It was those that the Amalekites attacked and killed with a vicious slaughter. But guys, that's often how Satan works in our lives. It's how he works through our flesh, using the flesh to attack us, like the Amalekites attacked the children of Israel. He waits until we're weary discouraged, sick, or vulnerable in some way before he attacks. I was telling first service, I've been attacked more recovering from surgery than any other time in my ministry. It's almost like, you know, the devil's got people in, in a church, and they wait for their opportunity. And here I am recovering from surgery, and all of a sudden they lead a little coup. Uh, you know, and they're, and, you know, and then I, I got to deal with it, even though I'm not up to par. I'm, I'm still weak. I'm still recovering. That's a physical thing. Maybe he'll wait till you, God forbid, get word that you have some serious disease. Or you're weak in some other thing, uh, area. And uh, that's when the devil's going to attack. Mark it down. So abhorrent was that technique in the eyes of God, how they attacked the rear of the line. The weak, the sick, the handicapped, the elderly. So abhorrent was that in the eyes of God that he went on to say in Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So God said what they did was so despicable after I get you settled in the land of promise and you're at peace, at one point I'm going to give you the orders and you're going to wipe out utterly the Amalekites. You have to leave any of them alive. Well, that day finally arrived when God gave Saul the command to utterly wipe out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 3. However, Saul didn't obey completely what God had commanded him. He stopped short of fully obeying God's command and not only did he spare king agag king of the amalekites he also kept some of the best animals god said wipe out animals too all of them but he didn't he kept some of the choicest animals why well we'll offer them to god shame to just kill all these animals there these are good quality animals yeah but god said kill them oh the, listen the lord will understand you know this is much better than what he told us to do. How many times do we think better than God what's best for our lives? 
Of course, God sent the prophet Samuel to confront Saul coming back from this old deal. And basically said to him, listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken to the voice of God better than the fat of rams. When I tell you to do something, Saul, I want you to do it. If I give you a command, you're to keep it. You're not to obey partially. How many Christians are guilty of partial obedience? Not doing fully what God has said because we know better what's best for our lives. But anyway, Saul spared King Agag some of the choicest animals and um, probably some others that he didn't kill, left alive. King Saul only partially obeyed God's command to utterly wipe out the Amalekites. And listen, it was an Amalekite that eventually killed Saul. I believe the lesson the Holy Spirit is teaching us through this story is, if you don't take your flesh seriously, and you don't take it to heart God's command to utterly wipe it out through the power of the Holy Spirit, to crucify it every day, if you don't kill the flesh, it will rise up and destroy you. I've seen it. Christians who didn't take seriously the command of God to stop drinking wound up killing them. Stop smoking, wound up killing them. Stop taking drugs, or wound up taking their lives. And listen to me. Crucifying most of your flesh isn't good enough. Well, I've defeated most of it. Isn't that okay? Isn't that enough? Crucifying most of your flesh isn't good enough. There must be complete victory. Complete victory. There are many Christians who have grown weary in their fight with the flesh. Their reasoning goes something like this. Okay, so I'm not perfect. Who is? So I haven't conquered all my flesh and still have a few bad habits. So what? I've conquered most of them, most of my bad habits, most of the flesh. I know God understands. Well, here's something God wants you to understand. Listen to what the Lord said about this issue in Numbers 33. Now the Lord spoke saying, verse 51, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Notice the word all. All the inhabitants of the land from before you. Verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Again, God is saying, when I give you a command, I expect you to fully keep it. Israel didn't obey my command fully. They came into the promised land. They began to fight with the inhabitants for a number of years. They got tired of warfare. And they decided that the remaining little pockets of enemy resistance were not worth the effort. We've conquered most of the land, right? And so they began to settle in. But they left these little pockets of enemy resistance, which eventually grew into major problems where these enemies got stronger and stronger and now they began to take land away from God's people territory that they had conquered began to reclaim it just like those pockets of enemy resistance in your life whatever they are you say hey I'll just hey, just peacefully coexist with whatever I've fought enough they'll become beachheads from which the enemy will launch new offenses to take back territory you've conquered for Jesus Christ from your life. Guys, whenever we try to peacefully coexist with the flesh, instead of fighting against it, you know, all the bad habits and other sinful practices that still remain, we are setting ourselves up for disaster, spiritually speaking. And again, God only has one command when it comes to our flesh, and that is to crucify it. Utterly wipe it out. Kill it. To drive out the bad habits and other areas of bondage in our lives where the flesh, you know, has still got control of us. Yeah, we've conquered most of the old life and bad habits. But God wants us to conquer all of it, right? 
He doesn't want us under any control to the devil. Otherwise, those bad habits and areas of bondage will eventually down the road wipe you out. That's what it is. That's the lesson I'm getting from this. And again, this is what happened to King Saul, who offered God, you know, partial obedience. He failed to wipe out the Amalekites completely. And then in first, Second Samuel 1, verses 1 to 10, we see it was an Amalekite that killed Saul. Look, I think of the tragedy of how many lives have been destroyed by the flesh. I've been in ministry 40 years. I've seen a lot of lives delivered. I've seen a lot of lives destroyed. So many people, even as we speak, all around us are being destroyed by their flesh. Families are being destroyed by the flesh through selfishness, greed, and materialism. Working so many hours and never home with their kids. Marriages are being destroyed by the flesh through lust, pornography, and adultery. Physical health is being destroyed by the flesh through alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, etc. Guys, if you don't bring your flesh to the cross and reckon it dead by faith every day, it will rise up and destroy you and possibly destroy those around you. And the only thing powerful enough to set you free is the Word of God, prayer, and the power of the Holy Spirit. But you've got to get mad at your giant. I was telling first service, I was talking to a lady in our church at the picnic yesterday. And this lady has really been battling something pretty substantial in her life, an area of her flesh that is causing her to do some things that she was just devastated over. Just devastated over. And she kept falling into this thing. And she was just devastated and, you know, crying out to God. And then one day, she got mad. I mean, really mad at this thing. And said, enough is enough. I'm going to stop feeling sorry for myself. I'm going to stop laying on the floor, weeping in a heap. I am going to get mad at this thing. And she did. And she went on the offensive and she was telling me that she gets up early every morning to spend time in the Word without fail. She's got a devotional she works through every single day. And she brings the Word with her wherever she goes. And she has a minute, she opens the Word. She's filling her mouth with the Word of God. And she told me, Pastor, I don't, I've never known such victory and joy. This thing hasn't even been an issue for months now. I said, be careful. Praise God, be careful. Don't take for granted your victory. You stop being in the Word. You stop praying, getting people praying for you and stop relying on the power of the Spirit. The flesh will rise up and it will put you back under its control. But praise God, you've got victory. And it was because she got mad at her giant. Don't get sad at your giant. Get mad at your giant. Oh, I don't want to be this way. Oh, you know. I hate being this way. Great. Get mad at whatever it is that has you bound. Go on the offensive, right? But you never give up. You, you never give up the fight. I was telling first service that years ago my pastor said he would talk to a young guy in his church. And, and, the, and the young guy said, you know, in his 20s, young guy said, Pastor, I, I have been wrestling with homosexuality my entire life. I just, I'm just tired of fighting it. I'm just going to give in to it. And my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, said, Listen, you never give in to the flesh. You never make a treaty with it. You never say, I'm just going to accept it. I'm going to live with it. I, no. You fight against it until your dying breath if you need to. You never give up the fight. Israel needed to fight until they were completely victorious. They would have been if they had had the, a heart for the fight to continue. They got tired. After seven years, ah, we're tired. We're tired of living in the trenches. We want to go home and start living in those houses we didn't build, drinking from those wells we didn't dig, eating from those vineyards we didn't plant. Uh, you know, all the stuff they took over from the Canaanites. We'd like to start enjoying the blessings of God and stop fighting the fight, the battles of the Lord, really. And that's a sure sign for victory. Look, I'll give you one more quickly. One more principle. Last one. 
Number six, you must believe the promises of God if you're going to be victorious. You must believe the promises of God in his word if you're going to be victorious. Look at verse 46. First part. This day, David talking to Goliath, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. Verse 49. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Have you ever asked yourself how David could have been so sure he was going to be victorious and kill Goliath and not the other way around. Because he's like 14 years old. He's going up against a seasoned warrior nine and a half feet tall. You know, you don't get any indication that he's scared in the least. He's got complete confidence. If you were to interview him on that day before he would have fought this fight, you know, he wouldn't have said, well, David, are you, are you confident in the battle? You, he would have never said, well, I, I hope uh, I'm going to be victorious. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going to cut this guy's head off, man. I'm going to feed him to the birds. I mean, he was completely confident he was going to... How could he have been so sure of himself that he was going to have victory? You know why? Because he believed the promise of God. You see, back in chapter 16, verse 13, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David to be the next king of Israel. As of chapter 17, David hadn't taken the throne yet. David believed what God promised him. Therefore, he knew Goliath couldn't kill him or else God would be a liar. And that was incomprehensible for David to think. And guys, it was his faith in God's promise that gave him strength for the, for the battle and allowed the power of God's spirit because faith is the umbilical cord that allows the power of God to flow from him into our lives. Without faith, we can't please him. Without faith, we can't have victory. And because David had faith in God's promise, that's why God gave him the power to be victorious. you think David brought down this giant with a sling and a stone? David, he was good with that thing, no doubt. But when he swung that thing and let that rock fly, God turned it into a guided missile and put a bullseye on Goliath's head, and that's what happened. God caused this giant to fall. God allowed David to go over there and finish him off. All because David believed in the promise of God. Guys, I can't stress this enough. God has given to us many great and precious promises in his word. Either we believe them or we don't believe them, but that is the difference between victory and defeat. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to these. I'll just read them quickly. I could, I could take days going through the promises of God and His Word. I'll just give you four that came to mind as I prepared this message, and then we'll bring it to a close. But first of all, Romans 8.37. Paul said, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Whatever you're facing, you are more than a conqueror. And God has promised you victory. It is your birthright as a child of God. Number two, Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply, listen, all your need, everything you need to live according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is a promise that, that strikes at, at fear and, uh, and all. You have a, a need and you don't have the resources to meet that need. This is a promise to bring down the Goliath of fear. Uh, meditate on it. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Brings down the Goliath of fear in other areas of our lives, right? But um, he, when you have fear, God hasn't given you that fear. God wants you to have confidence in his promises and trust in him to do what he's told you he's going to do. And finally, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. By which we have been given, he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these 
you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Whatever corruption you're facing, whatever area of the flesh has got a hold on you, whether it be lust or something else, we have been promised that God's nature lives within us, the power of God's Spirit resides in us, and we will have victory if we look to Him to fight the battle. Guys, we're done, but let me just say this in closing. It is possible, by God's grace and strength, to defeat the giants in your life that stand in your way between you and experiencing all that God has for you as a Christian. But here they are quickly. Again, stay close to God. The best defense is a good, strong offense. Stay close to God. Number two, remember past victories. They will build your faith for present battles. Number three, acknowledge your giant. Don't deny there's a problem. Number four, get angry at your giant. Get angry. Number five, don't let anyone discourage you from taking on your giant. Sometimes it's our own family that tries to discourage us. Again, I was telling first service that the Jim, uh, Jim Elliott who was uh, studying to be a medical doctor. He's saved. His whole family is saved, his mom and dad and all. And, um, you know, everyone was saved in his family. Tremendous God-fearing family. And one day the Lord speaks to Jim as he's in medical school. It says, Jim, you're not going to be a doctor. You're, you're to, um, uh, to leave the university. I'm going to send you uh, out as a missionary. He told this to his family thinking that they would be happy, excited. And of course, they said to him, Jim, don't be a fool. You're going to give up a life of security and prestige to be what? A missionary in the jungles and take your life into your hands every day? I mean, don't be a fool, Jim. To which Jim Elliot responded those famous words, that man is no fool that gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Sometimes your own family tries to discourage you from going against the giants maybe on the mission field that God wants you to fight against to, redeem, to save people for his glory. And number six, you must believe the promises of God if you're going to be victorious. There's no other way around it. God said it. That should settle it. Let's cling to it and let's see what God's going to do. But I believe God's word. I believe the promises he's given me. So keep that in mind. Meditate on those principles. Next week, God willing, we'll continue our study in John 8, picking up where we left off as we work our way through uh, that incredible chapter as well. Father, we thank you for your great and precious promises by which you have guaranteed us victory. And we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. And as your children, we are more than conquerors. There's no giant that stands so big that your grace and strength and spirit can't bring down in our lives. So thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.